Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Students of the New Testament can't help but impose their understanding of triumph on the story of the crucifixion. Desperate to find hope in human strength, they rush to what they see as the happy ending in Mark, minimizing the lengthy stretch of darkness, cruelty, and ridicule endured by Jesus. Why? Because in the end, we are not interested in God's victory, but our own. We do not trust in the Lord. We want what we want for ourselves with no regard for his mission. When we leap to the end of the story, we fail to see the true victory in the Lord's defeat. His steadfast proclamation of scripture to the very end. His unshakable trust in his Father's will his hope against hope in his father's cause at his own expense. The centurions and the world's conversion through his obedience to Torah, and finally, the overthrow of Caesar by means of the Lord's teaching. In the midst of the darkness, we do not trust in these victories because our first priority is to save our own skin. We want to see Jesus win in worldly terms because we want to win. We want him to come down from the cross not only because it is painful and embarrassing, but because we ourselves do not want to be held accountable to scripture, because we ourselves cannot face our own death or that of our loved ones, because we ourselves are cowards. As a result, we cling to false hopes of our own making while others suffer in our place. Hear the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 209 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about this mechanism of belittling of berating that we find again and again in Paul's epistles and that we see at work here in the Gospel of Mark with respect to Jesus. And we mentioned how the marking of the hour is a way of throttling the speed of the narrative, backing out of ephthese into the difficulty of this final witness. And it has to be slowed down so that Jesus can be belittled and so that we can 
hear him being belittled. Jesus just doesn't care. He's in front of Pilate, doesn't care. People are mocking him, doesn't care. People are ready to crucify him, he doesn't care. He only cares about the will of his father. This is what's amazing about this. The belittling and the pain of what he goes through doesn't penetrate him. He is immune to this because of his laser focus on the Father. And don't theologize what Dr. Benton just said. We're not talking about whether Jesus truly experienced suffering. What we're saying is that in his suffering and in his belittlement and in the shame that he is bearing, he never stops trusting in the will of his Father. Now, normally, when you see someone get beat up, we see it in professional environments all the time. Someone stumbles in their job and it gets raised in a meeting and suddenly everyone around this person who feels vulnerable starts to pile on and talk about how bad they are in order to avoid accountability and to ensure their own survival. And that's what the characters are doing in Mark. But the reader is in a different position. The reader is in the position of the follower of Jesus. So you now hear Jesus getting belittled and you're having to be dragged through it slowly, but you're stuck. You can't do what you normally do, which is somehow align yourself with the people belittling him to get yourself off the hook. You're stuck. So when we slow down, for a slow-mo view of the ridicule of Jesus, we're slowing down for your ridicule and belittlement also. And this is how you have to understand not only 1 Corinthians, but in general, the prophetic critique in the letters of Paul, the prophetic critique that you should be receiving in the sermon each week if they are reading scripture, there is a prophetic critique because in order for the will of God to reign and to gain hegemony, we have to become smaller. I just recently heard a sermon of someone who is saying, well, you know, we pray for our needs and it's okay to pray for what we need from God because God is happy to supply us with what we need and things like this. Jesus never does this. Jesus only prays that he can carry out the will of his Father and that his disciples will also carry it out. It's not about getting what I need. You assume you get what you need. You pray that your will not become weak, so that your trust would become weak, so that you begin to trust in Pilate, you begin to trust in those who are mocking, those who believe that Jesus should be able to come off the cross because they believe in their own theology as opposed to scripture. It's not about what you think you need. It's about what God says you need, and you trust that that's what you need. You say, oh, well, I didn't get everything I wanted. Well, this is not Santa Claus. You don't ask Jesus what you need. You don't ask God what you need. You accept what you get as what you need. This is how it works. This is what Jesus accepts. Be it known to you, O Caesar, that I will not bow down to your effigy. I will bow down to the will of my father. 
which means that I will submit to crucifixion at your hands. But be it known to you that even if my father allows me to be killed in crucifixion, and even if he does not avenge me and set right this wrong, even so I will not submit to your gods, Caesar. This is how you have to hear the crucifixion in Mark. And when you have this frame of mind, which is not a frame of mind we're constructing, it's a frame of mind I just lifted from the book of Daniel, then you understand the importance of verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So here we are in the middle of the afternoon, from about noon to about three in the afternoon, when everything becomes dark. Now, Father, we were talking before about how important it is that everything in the center of this scene of crucifixion is utter darkness during the middle of the day in the entire place. This is the darkness of the lowliest slave in the most oppressive Roman household. This is the sadness and the emptiness a person feels when they've been totally dejected, ridiculed, cast aside, belittled, shut out, denied their hopes and their dreams. This is how someone feels when they're bereft of a future. And this is the place to where Jesus goes. And he dwells there for an extended period. This fulfills the scripture of all the places where we read about the shadow of death. This is the shadow of death that the whole world is plunged into when Jesus is on the cross. We have the shadow of death that's famous from Psalm 23, but we have the shadow of death appear all over scripture. It's adding this shadow of death that Jesus is dwelling in, as you said, Father, where everyone ends up in this narrative when they're bereft of hope. It's dismantling the false hope that people peddle through their religions. People peddle a realized eschatology. They peddle a happy ending story where everything will be fine. But that's not what Mark is saying here. So you have this period of a kind of nihilism where there's no reason, humanly speaking, to have hope. It's only when there's no reason, humanly speaking, which is why you cannot make out of this a Star Wars plot where there's a down and then there's an up. There's a loss and then there's a win. We were in a jam, but then we won in the end. There is no victory here. This is it. He's about to die. In human terms, all is lost. And it is at this point that we hear verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, unfortunately, Richard, people psychologize this verse as though we're talking about how Jesus felt about his situation. But this is a gross misreading because he is not speaking of his own volition. He is quoting the psalm. He is showing you in Mark what it means to place your trust in the Lord in Psalm 22. It's not the way we talk, like we go to church for a pick-me-up so that we're inspired to get through our difficult week. No, we go to church so that Paul can make us 
smaller than Jesus so that we can understand what it means to cry out to the Lord in Psalm 22 without faltering in our trust. This is the title of the psalm. It's not Jesus being exasperated like there's no hope. It's the opposite. He's demonstrating that to his very last breath, he did not lose hope, even if it meant that he lost, because it isn't about what Jesus wants or thinks he needs. As you said, it's about the will of the Father. As expressed in the word of the Father, because he's quoting from Scripture with his last breath. He is still sowing seed until he can literally sow no more seed. And you nail his hands and his feet down and he's still sowing the seed because all he needs is his mouth to continue to speak the word of his father. What I noticed here also is that he didn't quote it in Hebrew. He quoted it in Aramaic, which is significant. He is speaking in the language that the people speak. He's not speaking in the language of the Torah itself. He's speaking with the words of the sanctioned translation that the people would understand. So he's quoting from the beginning of this Psalter in order to bring to mind the entire context of the Psalm, which is, why have you forsaken me? But if you read to the end of Psalm 22, it's about how even though you have forsaken me, I will not lose hope. Jesus begins with this word of hopelessness, but because he will not lose hope, he stubbornly clings to hope just as he stubbornly rejects Pilate. He will not give in, and he won't give in to any word except the word of his father. His quote of this verse is akin to someone shouting out a song title with the expectation that everyone would go look up the song and listen to the lyrics. And he's saying that this song is my song and it's the purpose of my life and with my last breath I'm going to shout out its title for the whole world to hear in a language that no one will possibly miss so that it could never be said that I didn't do what my father asked me to do which was to sow the seed. When some of the bystanders heard it they began saying behold he's calling for Elijah. Now I want to point something out to those who aren't familiar with Greek, the name Elijah in Greek is Elias, and it's pronounced in Arabic Elias and so forth. It's very common, Elia. Those who are familiar with Eastern languages would understand this connection that when Jesus is crying out, Eloi, Eloi, it's acoustically understandable why some might think he's calling for Elijah. As they are hearing him speak, they hear the message that he's trying to convey, they misunderstand. He's not calling Elias, he's calling Eloi. Jesus is trying so hard to get them to hear this psalm, but they're not hearing it. They have ears to hear, but they cannot hear. They think they know scripture and they don't know scripture. Secondly, they know a little bit of scripture, enough to be dangerous. Why do they love Elijah? Everyone loves Elijah. Why? Because he gets the fiery chariot and the fiery horses. And they love it when they get to see the fireworks. This is what they've been hoping for all along. All the times that we've talked about, they were amazed. They were amazed. They were amazed. Here it comes to fruition. They want to be amazed because now Elijah's going to come and we're going to get to see with our own eyes the fire chariot, which we only heard about from Torah. They don't understand 
Torah. They can't understand it when it's read to them. They don't understand what the Messiah means. They don't know what it means to submit to God's will. They don't know what it means when they hear these words being spoken. They misunderstand them almost willfully so that they can twist things to see the miracle they want to see. Because the real miracle in the story of Elijah and Elisha is not the victory of Israel over the nations by the sword and the chariot. The real victory that's hoped for, embodied in the mantle of the prophet, is the movement of the Lord's teaching beyond the Jordan. Elijah, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul are interchangeable functions. In the story of Elijah, it's the movement of the Lord's teaching beyond the Jordan. In the story of John the Baptist, it's the movement of the Lord's teaching in the wilderness. In the story of the Apostle Paul, it's the movement of the Lord's teaching to the nations. It's the same function. And this is what they miss, and they're fooled by the acoustic link. But they miss the deeper point that this isn't about Elijah coming and bringing about the end of the world and building the temple in Palestine. No, this is about the temple not made with human hands. It's the temple that Jesus is building with his last breath when he climbs the tree of the cross and shouts at the top of his lungs in a language that the widest array of people could understand, the words of scripture. In this case, the title of Psalm 22. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. Again, why would the Elijah of the Bible in the story of Elijah and Elisha, the one who brings the Lord's teaching, why would he go against the Lord's teaching and bring Jesus down from the cross? The darkness couldn't penetrate their skulls because this is exactly what happened before the darkness. Before the darkness, they gave him the water mixed with myrrh. He didn't drink. And then the criminals who were by him reviled him, saying, can't you let yourself down off the cross? I mean, for heaven's sake, they want to keep him alive so that he can get himself off the cross. They want to keep him going so they can see something awesome. Now, it was dark for three hours in the middle of the day. This was not enough for them. They want the fireworks. The story of Elijah is not about the fiery chariot. If it were about the fiery chariot, prophecy would have ended only by passing on the mantle to Elisha so that prophecy could continue. Is there a point? These people can't get it through their heads. They try the same thing over and over again so that they get to see the Messiah they want rather than the Messiah that God sends them. The darkness could not penetrate their conscience because they joined in with those who were ganging up on the downtrodden. These are the bystanders that were, are, and will continue to ridicule Jesus until the very end. As such, they've gotten themselves off the hook from dwelling in the darkness. And this is a very important point for Christians. Because all of us act as though feel-good Christianity is something that may or may not be valuable but doesn't do any damage to anyone. I strongly disagree. Because in order for you to experience this uplifting thing you crave, someone has to be in the darkness. And if you make out of their darkness 
a way for you to feel good by doing something good for the world, you're contributing to their darkness. Christianity is not about getting a pep talk and being uplifted so that you can have hope in worldly terms. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is about finding the dark places and going there. Not just for the sake of the poor, but in order to bear witness with them in the darkness to the one thing that can provide true hope. It's one thing to build a program to help poor people. It's another thing to go into the darkest places of Moscow with the highest crime and the greatest poverty in the 19th century and find abused single women with children who can't run a household and to do laundry for them, to help take care of their children, to help them tidy up their house and move on to the next house. Not to give lip service or to do a good thing, but to become one of them. It's a serious matter. And notice, Richard, in verse 36, they're showing their true face. The scented wine was a hoax. This is what they really have to offer is the sour wine. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. His last words were the words of scripture. After he could no longer speak, then he was done. One is always obliged to sow the seed. Jesus sowed the seed even when he was crucified. So many people, when they are suffering, they feel like others are supposed to be ministering to them. Other people are supposed to be helping them. Other people are supposed to be doing things for them because that's the only way that it can be fair. Well, fooey on fair. Jesus himself, all he did was preach. He preached when things were going well. He preached when things were going badly. He preached when he was on the cross. He preached when people made fun of him. And then once he could preach no longer, he died. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now here, I want to be clear because the way people interpret this is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. I can't tell you, Richard, how many times someone has said, well, you see, Jesus is tearing up the law and showing us a new way. That's blasphemy. You just invalidated Jesus's witness. You just basically said he just died. It wasn't a witness. It wasn't a martyrdom. As though what he just died for now doesn't count. He tore it up. No. The veil in Exodus covers the Holy of Holies. He's opening it up so it can be shared with everyone. It's not about throwing away the Old Testament. It's about bringing the Old Testament to the Romans. And by Romans, I mean the whole world. Rome was the whole world in late antiquity. And this fits very nicely with verse 39. Because remember, it's not the Romans who are the enemy of Christ. It's Caesar who's the enemy of Christ. It's the leadership in Jerusalem who are the enemies of Christ, not the people. The people are lost. They have no shepherd, which is the fault of the leaders. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, there are two striking things about this. First, he saw Jesus preach Psalm 22, and he was converted. And he was a centurion who controls a legion, which means it's the conversion of 
the legion that Jesus battled earlier in Mark. It's the conversion of the Roman Empire. And this last part must not be lost on the ears of our listeners. A centurion in the Roman army, under the authority of Pontius Pilate, under the authority of Caesar, the son of the gods, is calling a dejected, despised, outcast, criminal, executed for rebellion. He is calling this man the son of God, singular. A centurion's life is about obedience. This centurion saw a man who every step of the way did nothing except what God commanded. If you're a soldier under Caesar and you walk into battle and your general says, keep going forward, you keep going forward. If you're surrounded by 15 people with swords, you keep going forward. If they stab you and your general says, keep moving forward, you keep moving forward until you die. And then you stop going forward. So for the centurion, it's very clear, it's very obvious, it's mathematical. Here is a man who every step of the way followed his general, followed his king, followed his God, his father. His obedience to his literal last breath was very easy for the centurion to see. Obviously, this is a son of God because he only did what God said every step of the way, even if it meant dying. This is how centurions live and die. For the centurion, who is supremely practical, Jesus' obedience demonstrated the hegemony of his God. I don't think he's responding to the tearing of the veil of the temple. For heaven's sake, the temple is a long ways away from where he's being crucified. All he's seen is what Jesus has done, like you said, Father. The tearing of the curtain of the temple is a metaphor for the hearer of the story to understand that Jesus accomplished what the leaders of Jerusalem couldn't, which was the conversion of the centurion to the teaching of the household of Abraham. This is how you fight Caesar, not with a sword, not with a rebellion under Bar Abbas, not with the return of Elijah and his fiery chariot, but with the chariot of Ezekiel that carries the word of God out of the temple out to the nations. This is what it is to be exposed to the Holy of Holies. It's the teaching. The I teaching. Mean, what's sitting in the Holy of Holies in the temple? It's the tablets and the rod of Aaron are sitting in the Holy of Holies. And this is what they have. This is what there's access to. And now the Gentiles themselves can see what it means to be obedient to God to the last breath. This century knows what it means to be under the threat of death and knows what it means to betray his master. And here he saw someone perform his duty perfectly. Verse 39 is the most exciting verse in the book when you understand the context of the Gospel of Mark because the author is sending a warning shot directly across Caesar's bow. This is a direct threat because once you show that the centurion who until now would gain honor by executing people. Once you see the centurion bowing down to the executed, Caesar 
has been emasculated. Thanks very much, Dr. Brendan. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.